Hello and welcome to edition number 1919 of the Whitney Talking News, which we are recording on Thursday the 7th of July at the, well that's 2022, in case you'd forgotten, at the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney. I'm Alan Ravel and I edited this edition. Uh, And yes, uh, I did also edit last week's edition, but we had a little swap on the roster and you got me again this week, so don't pull out the plug thinking this is last week's. Our four readers this week are Debbie Diacon, Gavin Smalley, Jenny Wiley and John Ashwell. Our recording engineer this week is Graham Diacon. And as is usual, we have items taken mainly from the Whitney Gazette, plus a sprinkling of items from elsewhere. So, first up to today is Debbie, and she'll be talking to you about uh, the lead story in the Whitney Gazette this week, which is about the future of the town's high street. Yes, and the headline is Concerns Over Lack of Clear Plan for High Street Future. Highways chiefs are being accused of a lack of vision for Whitney Town Centre after they asked traders how new government funding should be spent. Oxfordshire County Council has been given almost £2 million to spend on the high street, but according to businesses, it, quote, doesn't know what to do with it. It is six months since the council banned most motor vehicles from the high street and marketplace in a bid to make the area safer and more pleasant for shoppers. The decision was attacked by traders, fearing it would devastate business. Now they've been asked for views on how additional funding can be spent. In March, it was announced Whitney was expected to get £2 million from the government's active travel grants to help transform the town centre through a scheme to encourage cycling and walking. It is believed the council planned to bring in automatic number plate recognition technology and a public consultation is underway on implementing 20-mile-an-hour zones. Henry Moe, owner of Sandwich de Whitney, was among traders to criticise the council's traffic agenda. He said, They've got a 1.9 million grant, but it looks like they don't know what to do with it. They plan to have meetings with Whitney businesses to see what ought to be done. Comments I've heard so far include... Why apply for £1.9 million when there's no plan? I'll be proposing the restriction of general traffic, but not 24 hours a day, every day, only 11 to 5pm on Saturday. They want to protect the public, and that's the only time the high street is busy. If we're not careful, this grant will destroy Whitney's heritage and history. David Gambier, chairman of Whitney's Resurrected Chamber of Commerce, said, We've been invited to submit our suggestions as to how the council may use some additional funding that they have received that is intended for the improvement of the high street and immediate area. He said the next chamber meeting, usually attended by representatives of the county council, West Oxfordshire District Council and Whitney Town Council, would be devoted to the subject. He added, Since taking on the chairmanship of the chamber, I have undertaken different surveys in respect of traders' views, and the prevailing opinion is that the majority would prefer, or would have preferred, to see a return to two-way traffic flows. I have written to the relevant authorities to represent this opinion. 
Whitney MP Robert Courts was among critics who said the apparent lack of planning by the county before and after the closure was potentially harming the town. He said the county council's cavalier approach is putting the long-term future of Whitney's centre at risk. They have closed the high street without a plan, leaving Whitney's centre in limbo, neither accessible for shoppers in cars nor properly pedestrianised. While it is welcome that central government is providing funding to end the chaos in Whitney's centre, it is deeply concerning that the county council still has no coherent plan to support our high street. I called on the council to start listening to local opinion and develop a long-term plan months ago, but only now are they starting to reach out to the local traders who they have consistently ignored and dismissed. The council needs to stop dragging its heels and urgently clean up the mess they've made to Whitney High Street. With every day they scramble around for a plan, local traders and motorists continue to suffer. Duncan Enright, who represents Whitney North and East and is district deputy leader, said plans for improving the high street were still at the discussion stage, but we definitely want to involve everyone. The county council was asked for a comment, but failed to respond. And next is Gavin with a story about a squeeze on places at the district's secondary schools. Yes, fewer pupils get to their first choice of school. Fewer secondary school pupils in Oxfordshire are starting at their first choice in September compared to last year. Figures from the Department for Education show that there were 7,288 applicants to high schools in the county this year. Of those, 88.1% were given a place at their first choice for the 2022-23 academic year, down from 88.7% the year before. Meanwhile, 96.3% were allocated one of the schools on their list, also down from the year before when the figure stood at 97.2%. In April, pupils starting at primary and secondary schools this year found out which one they would be attending. Parents and carers can put four preferences for a state school, with schools ranked by order of preference. If pupils do not receive an offer from any of their preferences they are given a place at another school. The figures show 91.5% of Oxfordshire children were given their first primary school choice, a drop drop from 93% in the 2021-22 school year. Almost every child was given a primary school place on their list, with 98.6% being allocated to one of their preferences. Emily Hunt, Associate Director of the Education Policy Institute Think Tank, said these statistics only told part of the story. She said, We know from our research that the first choice offer rates vary considerably across the country, as does the availability of high-performing schools to apply to. The criteria used to determine whether a pupil is offered a place can also make it difficult for pupils who are unable to to live nearby. For those parents that have not been offered their first choice, many will consider the use of the appeals and waiting list system. Our own research has shown that navigating these can be difficult, with pupils from more affluent backgrounds being more likely to succeed via these routes. 
And now it's Jenny with a story about controversial plans for a popular recreation spot in Whitney. Ducklington Lake. The area is ideal for creating renewable energy. The area surrounding Whitney's Ducklington Lake could be used to create renewable energy it has been claimed. The popular walking spot has been sounded out by West Oxfordshire District Councillor Colin Dingwall as a possible location to source geothermal power. Using underground reservoirs of steam and hot water, geothermal power generates electricity or can heat and cool buildings directly. Southampton has been making use of geothermal since 1986, while the Eden Project in Cornwall began drilling in May 2021 as part of its aim to become carbon neutral or better by 2025. Currently, though, there are no deep geothermal plants in the UK. However, Councillor Dingwall says it's feasible for West Oxfordshire could be used to generate geothermal power. He said, it's simply drilling a borehole, putting cold water down and getting steam at the other end. We've got lots of water around here, often too much. We're looking to get the community behind this so we can put pressure on local government to get investing into this. You don't need Shell or BP. It's a very socialist thing to do and doesn't need large businesses. Councillor Dingwall earmarked Ducklington Lake as the location for harnessing the power of geothermal in the district. He said, the key area would be around Ducklington Lake. You could help the local businesses there by joining them up to a system. There's a lot of water there, and you've already got the high-powered substations. It's out of the way of most people, and there'd be low costs with connecting to the national grid. And finally, in this first round of stories, it's John with a court report about a local man who mixed drugs and driving in quite a spectacular way. (laughs) Yes, a driver caught a hundred times over the legal drugs limit. A man aged 28 has been sentenced after being found guilty of driving while 100 times over the drug limit. Sam Wolford of Cotswold Dean Stanlake pleaded guilty to one count of possessing cannabis at Oxford Magistrates Court in October last year. However, on Monday of last week, Wolford was also found guilty of two counts of driving a motor vehicle with a proportion of a specified controlled drug above the specified limit, namely cocaine and cannabis, in a further hearing at the same court. He was subsequently fined a total of £393 and ordered to pay costs of 620 He was also disqualified from holding or obtaining a driving licence for a period of 12 months. The incident happened on December the 5th, 2020, when Wolford was driving a Peugeot 106 down Burford Road in Whitney and crashed into a lamppost. Wolford ran from the vehicle, but following a search of the area, he was arrested and failed a roadside drug test. He was later found to have been more than 100 times over the drug limit. Investigating officer PC Charlie Hayes, based at Whitney Police Station, said Wolford drove his vehicle while way above the legal limit for drugs and caused a massive damage to his car. It is only good fortune that nobody was seriously injured and I am pleased that he has been sentenced accordingly. 
It is completely unacceptable to drive a motor vehicle while under the influence of drugs, and Wolford can consider himself fortunate not to have been seriously injured or injured other members of the public. And I've neglected to say in, in my intro at the start of uh, this evening's recordings that we, we have a new uh, reader trying us out this evening. His name is John Anderson. Um, hopefully you'll be hearing more from him in future recordings. Take it away, John. Whitney Carnival to return with Grand Parade. Whitney Carnival is back this weekend after a two-year break due to the pandemic. The hugely popular event will take place on Saturday with the theme of celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. The carnival kicks off with a grand procession through the centre of the town with floats, steam engines and marching bands and displays by cycling clubs and local school children. The last time it was held, in 2019, hundreds of residents lined the streets to watch a fleet of floats plus 28 schools, clubs and organisations, before heading to the Lees for an afternoon of entertainment. This year there will be a stage with music for all ages, plus wandering musical acts and speciality children's entertainers performing throughout the afternoon. There will be a fun fair and, of course, the famous grand old smiley steam train wending its way through the attractions. The hugely popular dog show, held under the Kennel Club rules and regulations, is returning and local businesses and traders will show off their wares on trade and craft stalls, plus there will also be plenty of choices for food and drink. Whitney Carnival is organised by the local Rotary Club, Lions Club, Round Table and Royal Air Force Air Cadets. In the past, it has raised as much as £10,000 for local organisations. Whitney Carnival is on Saturday from noon till 5pm. A fundraising page has been set up to help a work colleague who lost everything in a suspected arson attack. Amanda Cooper is raising funds for the victims who, she said, are starting from scratch by setting up a GoFundMe page. A target of £5,000 has been set, with £770 raised so far. Ms Cooper put out the appeal on Whitney Spotted Facebook. I'm sure most people have heard about the fire that happened on Elm Close last Friday. It was one of our work colleagues and we would like to try and raise money to help them get back on their feet. All they currently have is the clothes on their backs, so any donations you can give would be great. Ms Cooper is also asking for items such as a sofa, bed, tables and chairs, women's and men's clothes, shoes, kitchen appliances, white goods and pots and pans. These items can be dropped at the former Dowley's Garage in Norton Way in Carterton between 8am and 5pm. Ms Cooper said, They are starting from scratch, so anything anyone can spare, really. The appeal, which was also posted on our Carterton Facebook page, was deluged with offers ranging from furniture to a smart TV to cutlery in a kettle. One poster also offered the use of a van if anything needs collecting. Daniel Bohr, 32, appeared at Oxford Magistrates Court on Monday facing charges of arson being reckless as to whether life was endangered and possession of a knife. Prosecutors say he set fire to the house in Elm Close, Carterton on Friday, July 1st. 
Bohr also lives in the cul-de-sac. During the efforts, fi- despite the efforts of firefighters, the property was gutted in the blaze. Fleet of barges built for dredging of Palace Pool. A fleet of barges has been specially built to undertake a massive dredging operation of the famous Queen Pool at Blenheim Palace. The dredging, which gets underway this month, is one of the largest civil engineering projects ever undertaken at the site. Leading wet civil civil engineering contractor, Land and Water, will remove 300,000 cubic metres of silt, enough to fill Wembley Stadium and return the Capability Brown-designed lake to its original depth of 2 metres from its current shallows of 30 centimetres. Blenheim Estate Director Roy Cox said the dredge is one of the most ambitious civil engineering projects undertaken here at Blenheim over the last 300 years. It is vitally important to help ensure the long-term health of the lakes, surrounding waterways and parkland, and the rich biodiversity that it supports, as well as migrating, sorry, as well as mitigating the risk of environmental damage due to climate change. The six new Olympic-class hoppers have been designed by experts at Land and Water Plant, assisted by naval architects from Kiel Marine. The 20-metre-long steel vessels can each hold up to 80 tonnes of material. Material that has been built up at the bottom of the lake over many years will be dug out, very carefully so not to disturb the actual lake bed, and placed in the waiting hoppers. Once full, they will be pushed to a temporary wharf that has been constructed at the side of the lake and the silt unloaded into dumper trucks and used to create a new area of grassland on the estate. Kevin Kirkland, Managing Director of Land and Water, said it's great to be back at Blenheim following the restoration works at the Grand Cascade and continuing to safeguard the future and protect the history of this prestigious site and its landscapes. Land and Water are proud to be working on this project, believed to be the largest inland dredging project. We have utilised our expertise to deliver an overall solution that we truly believe is offering Blenheim and its visitors the best possible value. We will be using cleaner fuel throughout the project, which is up to sorry, which is up to ninety percent net carbon neutral. This will mean we are significantly reducing the environmental impact of our works, he added. Queen Pool is the upper lake at Blenheim and was created by Capability Brown around 1763 as part of his extensive re-landscaping of the park and gardens. The man-made lake gets its name from a 14th century fish pool that was known to be a favourite place of Queen Philippa, wife of Edward III. Earlier this year, Blenheim launched a competition to officially name each of the hoppers and the naming and the winning entries are named Clementine, Winston, Swan, Mallard, Fair Rosamond and Reg Who Likes to Dredge. Earlier warning is part of the Flood Action Plan. A report on floods which ruined Christmas for dozens of householders has detailed improvements made to help prevent it happening in future. 
At least 54 homes and businesses in Whitney were affected by flooding on December 23rd and 24th, 2020, leading to a formal investigation on how to limit the damage in future. That investigation led to the S19 Flood Investigation Report for Whitney, which was on the agenda of West Oxford District Council's Climate and Environment Overview and Scrutiny Committee. Measures include better warning procedures and maintenance work. The report reads, It was deemed necessary to complete a formal investigation into the flood incidents in Whitney due to the number of properties that reported flooding internally. At least 54 residential and business properties were confirmed as flooding internally on December 23rd and 24th, 2020. This included residents at Mill House Care Home, Riverside Gardens and Riverside House needing to be evacuated. On December 23rd, the report states, The amount of rainfall and intensity that fell on that day overwhelmed some parts of the highway drainage systems, which are very reliant on outfalls into watercourses, which had started to become compromised by the rising river level. This was followed on December 24th by arriving by river flooding when the upstream catchment flows reached Whitney and river levels peaked. The level peaked just after midnight on December 25th, 2020. The 2020 floods were greater than the current Environment Agency model of 1 in 100 years flood event. Despite site visits and meetings carried out by the WODC flood engineer and the EA, the report states, the EA has not carried out significant works or, uh, on or adjacent to the River Windrush. The Environment Agency sent two crews in the immediate aftermath of the flood to check the river for blockages and spoke at length to affected residents to offer advice on flood protection the report says. Meanwhile, according to the report, the Whitney Flood Mitigation Group regards a series of actions as quick wins. These include significant uh, maintenance carried out from Woodford Mill to downstream of the footbridge through Langle Common and new gauge boards installed from the Woodford Mill to Langle Common footbridge. So uh, this story is, I'm going to start this story and then Gavin will read the second part. And the headline is Stars Ready to Sparkle at Festival's Final Fling. The stars of this weekend's Cornbury Festival say they are excited to be heading to West Oxfordshire for the event's final fling. For the past 17 years, Cornbury has been a high point of the festival calendar attracting some of the world's biggest artists such as Paul Simon, Amy Winehouse, Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant and the Beach Boys. But this year will be the festival's last instalment, a result of financial pressures and the loss of its site at Great Dew Park, which is being sold off following the divorce of owners Rupert Murdoch and Jerry Hall. Headliners Ronan Keating, James Blunt and Brian Adams, however, have determined to make it a weekend to remember. It's just great to be back on on stage with my band again, says the former Boys Own star Ronan, 
during preparations for his return to Great Tew. After the last couple of years, I think everyone feels a huge sigh of relief that we can all get back together again to do something we truly love. And now I'm finally heading to Oxfordshire for Cornbury Festival. I was due to perform there in 2020, but understandably, everything had to be moved. It's a great lineup with Brian Adams, James Blunt, and then me on the Sunday. And he promised fans a stack of new songs. I was lucky to be able to release two albums during the pandemic, 2020 and Songs from Home, he says. It would be great to get back on the road and playing some of the new tracks along with all the hits from my solo years, as well as a few of the great boys' own hits that everyone loves. James Blunt also welcomed the return of festival season. He said, Get-togethers in the Cotswolds never stopped, I'm told, but the return of festivals is very exciting. I've missed the energy of lots of people coming together. Asked which artists deserved the spotlight this year, the Your Beautiful star laughed. I personally think I'm quite underrated. He added, I'm looking forward to seeing the darkness. I toured with them round Australia and Japan in about 2006, and they are great fun. He also used the downtime during the pandemic wisely, saying, I was very lucky to be able to go home and spend time with my family. I also learnt how to use a chainsaw and defend my house from a gang of thieves who tried to rob me three times. And what is his favourite festival moment? I've played at Glastonbury three times and on the Pyramid stage twice, he recalls. The second time, I crowd-surfed on the audience and when I returned to the stage discovered it was too high for me to climb onto. There was a man I didn't recognise standing on the stage, so I started shouting at him to help me and then realised that he was holding a camera and was filming for the BBC. So I was basically shouting, help me, to the nation. It was at this moment that I realised I was the least cool person in the music business. While Cornbury has some of the best camping of any British festival, James admits he won't be staying under canvas. I usually stay with friends when I'm in the Cotswolds, but at Cornbury I'll be on the tour bus on site. I've heard there's usually a waitrose on the festival site, so I think we'll be fine for provisions on the tour bus. Fans of Brian Adams can also expect some new tunes alongside hits Summer of 69, I Do It For You, and all for love. Founder Hugh Fillimore has announced this weekend's festival will bring down will be bringing down the curtain after nearly twenty years. He said we're hoping for a perfect British summer weekend, lots of dancing, some fireworks, and possibly a few tears. In March, he invited music lovers to join him for one last hurrah, and said it was back with a classic Cornbury lineup. Old friends who simply do what they do brilliantly and make us smile. He added, We don't want to do serious. We simply want to have tons of fun over the whole weekend. A late addition to Sunday's lineup is soul, R&B, pop, blues legend Gino Washington, with Steve Winwood another latecomer. The festival describes itself as a lovingly crafted, top-notch, very English open-air party tailor-made for the whole family. 
Mr Fillimore previously announced that the festival would finish in 2017, but relented after he received a wave of support. He said, We've loved every precious moment of this dear little independent festival, but I'm afraid it's now time for me to hang up my festival lanyards and call it a night. And find more details about this year's festival at cornburyfestival.com. Tributes paid after death of former mayor. Civic leaders have paid tribute to former Whitney mayor Chris Holliday, who has died. Mr Holliday represented the Whitney East Ward after being elected onto the Town Council in 2013. He served as mayor in 2016-17. Posting on social media, Whitney Town Council said, It is with great sadness that we learned of, on July the 4th, the death of former mayor of Whitney, Chris Holliday. Councillors and staff at Whitney Town Council remember his total commitment to all that he undertook, his unfailing sense of humour and that, above all, Chris stayed true to his maxim, it's all about the people. Our thoughts are with Lisa and the girls at this very sad time. Andrew Coles, Vice-Chair of West Oxfordshire District Council, said Chris was a plain-speaking, proud Yorkshireman who certainly left his mark on our town. Whilst we differed politically, our shared love of everything Whitney and Hedgehogs brought us together. He also deserves praise for his handling of the EU referendum during his tenure as Whitney Mayor. He was determined, as Mayor, to keep the office free from political controversy on such a divisive and contentious issue. He only publicly stated his own personal view after he had handed over the chains of office. My heartfelt condolences go to Lisa and the girls at this very sad time. And West Oxfordshire MP Robert Courts has commented on Boris Johnson's resignation, writing in social, on social media, this is the right decision. In a thread on his Twitter account, Mr Courts said, Against a profoundly difficult backdrop, the PM got the big calls right on Covid and led the world in supporting the Ukrainian people. For that, he deserves credit. The Conservative MP, who is Parliamentary Under-Secretary of State at the Department for Transport, added, My focus remains on serving the people of West Oxon and discharging my ministerial responsibilities, protecting passenger safety and working to ensure resilience as we approach a challenging summer. Transport cannot be put on hold while Westminster sorts itself out. The machinery of government must keep moving to provide the governance the public expects and our country, country deserves. We will be back with some more stories soon, but now it's time for the editor's choice of articles. We record this on the day that Boris Johnson agreed to stop being Prime Minister, after a chaotic few days of resignations and recriminations. I was minded to take down from my bookshelves... Johnson's book on another former Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, of whom he is a great admirer. Inside the jacket of the book is the following remark. This book, it says, is to be enjoyed not only by anyone interested in history, it is essential reading for anyone who wants to know what makes a great leader. Johnson, it seems, didn't really take that advice when it came to occupying the same position as his great hero. I looked for a passage in the book 
that in the light of recent events might seem prescient when read in the context of Johnson's capitulation. Instead, I found an amusing, if somewhat risque, tale about Churchill told to Johnson by the great man's grandson, Nicholas Soames, over lunch at the Savoy, of course. The story resonates with last week's news about the disgraced Deputy Chief Whip Chris Pincher, and perhaps it shines a light on Johnson too, who appointed Pincher knowing he had skeletons in his closet. So this is Soames. One of his great Conservative ministers was a bugger, if you see what I mean, said Soames loudly enough for most of the grill room to hear. Though he was also a great friend of my grandfather. He was also always getting caught, but of course in those days the press weren't everywhere and nobody said anything. One day he pushed his luck because he was caught with a guardsman on a bench in Hyde Park at three in the morning, and it was February, by the way. This was immediately reported to the chief whip, who rang Jock Colville, my grandfather's private secretary. Jock, said the chief whip, I'm afraid I have some very bad news about so-and-so. It's the usual thing, but the press have got it, and it's bound to come out. Oh dear, said Colville. I really think it, I should come down and tell the Prime Minister in person. Yes, I suppose you should. So the Chief Whip came down to Chartwell, Churchill's home in Kent, and he walked into my grandfather's study where he was working at his upright desk. Yes, Chief Whip, he said, half turning round. How can I help you? The Chief Whip explained the unhappy situation. He'll have to go, Churchill said. There was a long pause while Churchill puffed his cigar. Then he said, Did I hear you correctly in saying that so-and-so had been caught with a guardsman? Yes, Prime Minister. In Hyde Park? Yes, Prime Minister. On a park bench? That's right, Prime Minister. At three o'clock in the morning? That's correct, Prime Minister. In this weather? Good God, man, it makes you proud to be British. Perhaps times haven't changed much. And next, uh, Debbie's going to read last week's quiz questions and answers. So uh, here are the questions which were set last week by Alan and the answers. And the questions all concerned the Glastonbury Festival. The Glastonbury Festival was... Oh, question one. The Glastonbury Festival was originally called the Pilton Pop Folk and Blues Festival. In which year was it first held? And the answer is... 1970, but I suppose I'm not allowed to say because I set the question. 1970. Question two. The festival was the brainchild of a dairy farmer on whose land it is still staged each year. What is his name? Answer? Michael Evis. Michael Evis. Question three. Tickets. For this year's event, cost £280 plus a £5 booking fee. How much was a ticket to the first festival? Answer, £1, including free milk from the farm. Question four. The first Glastonbury Festival was attended by 1,500 people. How big was the crowd this year? Answer, 210,000 people. Question five. The headline acts who have played the festival in the last 20 years include David Bowie, the Rolling Stones and the Who. 
But one superstar group, which has been around since the 1960s, has so far failed to be persuaded by the eager organizers to headline the event. Um, answer? Fleetwood Mac. So there you are. So thank you very much. Uh, for those, and I of course knew the answers to them since I set them last week. So this week's quiz questions, and we won't have any calling out in this, so you can all focus on it at home. Uh, the quiz questions are all about the current political crisis. So question one: Boris is not Mr. Johnson's first real na- uh, real first name. What is his real first name? Question two: Amid All the resignations on Wednesday, and some today, Thursday, one minister managed to be sacked. Who was it? There's some whispering going on here. I hope you can't hear that at home. Question three. Mr Johnson was MP for Henley in Oxfordshire from 2008 to 2015. Where is his current constituency? And the fourth question, who was Prime Minister immediately prior to Mr Johnson succeeding to the role? And my last question for you, Mr Johnson famously attended Eton School, but which Oxford University College was Boris Johnson's alma mater? Answers next week. And now it's time for our Reflections spot which is an occasional series and this week it's David Sabatz who's back in our recording studio with some thoughts about his time as an exam invigilator. Thank you. For many years I have been an invigilator and consequently I enable students to sit their GCE A-level and GCSE exams at a local secondary school. This year has been a particularly interesting experience for everyone. Firstly, because the exams period extended over nearly seven weeks, the longest period ever. And secondly, this year's cohort of students had never sat public exams before because of the COVID pandemic. In previous years at the school where I am an invigilator, exams were conducted in three rooms. But this year, I have experienced many more rooms where student numbers range from 170 pupils down to just one. This was partly caused by the pandemic because many more students had been identified as having additional needs. As an invigilator, you have to watch the students at all times. So reading a book or newspaper is not allowed. And a new rule which the exam authorities introduced this year was that we could not read any of the exam papers the students were sitting. In previous years, I always enjoyed reading the papers to see if I could answer the questions. Some papers were more easier than others to answer. But in my team time as an invigilator, I've always enjoyed watching the students. And it is very illuminating for each one 
has a different writing style. Some hold their pen in what I would refer to as the normal pen grip, whilst others use their pens as though it was a paintbrush. Before an exam begins, students have to write on their answer booklet some required information, such as their name, candidate number, paper number, and on some papers, they need to sign their name. However, for a minority of students, that is all the writing they do. Because when the exam starts, they put their head on the desk and stay like that until the exam ends. Exam lengths vary from 45 minutes to 3 hours in length, depending, of course, on the subject being studied. So some of them even fall asleep. Most students, though, appear to be very industrious and want to give of their best, often writing copious amounts to provide the exam boards with the correct answers. This year, two of my grandchildren have done their GCSEs in different parts of the country, and along with all the others, my good wishes go to them. I hope they will all receive the results they need, which will enable them to go to the next stage of their education, be it sixth form, college, university, an apprenticeship, or even into the field of employment. The educators, either teachers, lecturers or tutors, prepare people so that those sitting exams can give of their best. It will be many years for some of us since we sat in examination and I can still remember the terror of entering an exam room, quaking in my shoes as I waited to go inside, wondering if I had done sufficient work to satisfy the examiners. The last exams I can recall taking were in the finance field and I remember the tutor with great fondness for through his skill and preparation, I was successful. The interesting aspect for me this year, as I studied the various students, was that each one of them is an individual and is unique, unless, of course, they are an identical twin. I was reminded, too, that each of one of them and of us is made in the image of God, for that is recorded in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. I do not know what God, God looks like, but as I looked at those students and continue to look at other people, I see folk who are loved by God, even though for many of them they are not aware of that. God sent into the world his son Jesus and it is through his life and grace that we can receive the gift of eternal life. God loves each of us and I pray that for you, the students and for all people, that God will become real to them. There is a song which is often sung in church and it is called, Will You Come and Follow Me? if I but call your name. 
God calls each of us to be his child. And if we follow him, he will prepare us to be the person he wants us to be. As you listen, it may be that God is calling to you right now. How will you respond to his call? May you feel God close to you, and I pray that the God of love will bless you and keep you not just for today, but for all time. Amen. Thank you, David, for that thoughtful reflection. Once again, there was no local sport in the Gazette this week. The sports page was a game filled up with news about Oxford United. So, now for another selection of news articles, firstly from Debbie. And this article is entitled, Widows Seeking Help, Trace Husband's Link to Asbestos. The widow of a former electrician is appealing for help to establish how he contracted the asbestos-related cancer which claimed his life. Alan Noble from Whitney died one month after being diagnosed with mesothelioma, a cancer of the lining of the lung commonly associated with exposure to asbestos, often decades previously. Following the 81-year-old's death, his widow, Susan Noble, 75, is appealing for anyone who worked with Alan to come forward and provide information on whether he may have been exposed to asbestos during his working life. Mrs Noble and her legal team are keen to hear from anyone who has worked at Key Electrical Installations Limited between 1953 and 69 or at Lomax and Staines Limited in Whitney between 1969 and 2004, when Alan worked at locations across Oxfordshire. Lawyer Hayley Hill, the asbestos-related disease specialist at Irwin Mitchell, said, Alan worked on the installation of heaters and electrical items in various buildings, including schools and universities. While asbestos is associated with heavy industry, It was also used widely in public buildings such as schools, hospitals and universities. In Alan's case, we now require more information to progress the investigation further. Susan would be so grateful if anyone with information that could help could come forward. Any detail, no matter how small, could prove vital in ensuring Susan gets the answers she deserves as she comes to terms with the loss of her husband. The appeal comes after the Work and Pensions Committee published a report saying there should be a 40-year deadline for the removal of asbestos from public and commercial buildings. Mr Noble was diagnosed with mesothelioma in February 2020 and died in March 2020. He began showing symptoms of shortness of breath in August 2019 which continued to worsen and he started to display chest pain and a fever leading to a hospital admission. Mrs Noble said, Alan was my soulmate and best friend and losing him to mesothelioma was a terrible experience. Despite the time that has passed, I'm not sure I can ever fully get over losing Alan and just how much I still miss seeing him and hearing his voice at home. Alan was a kind and hard-working man and didn't deserve to have his retirement cut short by this disease, 
or to have to suffer at the end through no fault of his own. Nothing can bring Alan back home to me, but I can do this last service for him by getting to the truth and allowing my wonderful husband to rest in peace. Anyone with information which could help Susan can contact Haley Hill at Irwin Mitchell's Birmingham office on 0121-214-5273. Council approves proposal to acquire Langall Common. Langall Common will be protected from development and preserved as a public green space after the council and local residents joined forces to buy it. Residents have helped raise the funds to purchase the land which lies between the town centre and Cogs, which is owned by Eton College. West Oxfordshire District Council's Cabinet Member for Planning and Sustainable Development, Carl Rylett, said it was a fantastic opportunity to buy the land and put in place covenants to secure it for public open space in perpetuity. The Council came together with the Protect Our Meadow Residents fundraising group to generate the funds. Chair Phoebe Lloyd said she was ecstatic that they were able to protect the meadow for generations to come. She said everyone was quite concerned that we would be seeing a residential development on this piece of land, which many of the residents hold dear. When it was first entered into the auction, we collectively looked to see if we could raise the funds. The council contacted contacted us and said they were also looking at the piece of land and trying to take it out of the auction. Would we like to team up with them? The support generated in such a short timescale really shows the strength of feeling in the community that the community has for this land and how important it is for the wider community and the wildlife that we share it with. The popular meadow alongside the River Windrush has a Second World War Norcom pillbox and a local primary school. It is used to walk and cycle from the east of the town centre and has St Mary's Church and Cogs Manor Farm next door. It has Glebe Field next to it, which is owned by the church, and other surrounding fields are under the control of the council, and it eventually connects to Whitney Lakes. Deputy De- De- District Deputy Leader and Town Councillor for Whitney North and East, Duncan Enright, said our concern was that it might be bought and used for something that wasn't open access for the public, and so we wanted to preserve it for all time and we hope that that is what we have now done. He said that having countryside in the middle of a town is quite unusual, and therefore very valuable. Mr Rylett said, We know that having access to green space in towns is good for our residents' well-being, and the purchase ensures that it will remain accessible for our residents. By purchasing green space, the council can prevent development and preserve public amenity, in perpetuity and can work with communities to meet the current and future needs and aspirations of residents. This article entitled Carnival Brings Riot of Music and Racing Fun is accompanied by colourful pictures of uh, cyclists in multicoloured, with multicoloured spokes and also Morris dancers and of course a carnival queen in white and purple with her attendants underneath umbrellas. Engine Carnival saw a brilliant turnout despite the weather, with villagers coming out in force to watch the traditional shirt race and parade and join in carnival festivities. 
Two years of pent-up creativity meant entries to the shirt race, a fancy dress road race on improvised prams and go-karts, were of a high standard. With some ingenious feats of engineering, including a mobile snooker table, a Top Gun jet and Shrek's toilet... The event, which at nearly 80 years old is one of the oldest carnivals in the county, started with Morris dancing in the square and then at the Swan Pub. There was then a parade followed by judging of the floats, craft fair, arena acts, fun fair and the shirt race. Carnival Queen Amaya Arnold and her attendants made the most of their day on the field where there was dancing, a stuntman and pig show. The welly-wanging winner throw was 31.94 metres. Villager Martin Harris said, Well done, everyone who made it all possible. People were just so lovely, whether in the shirt race, at the flower festival, in the procession or on the field. Other entertainment included performances by Deep Down Brass Band, Jez Avery's stunt show, The Hog Show, Armalegan Morris... Punch and Judy, and a display by Sheridan the Sheepdog. Now, two items of news in brief. The first one's headed up chickens, pasta and Tesco on home visit. Two chickens with unusual names have spread some joy at an Oxfordshire care home. Elderly residents have have been taking part in a range of activities at homes across the county, to mark Care Homes Open Week. The Bantam Chickens, named Pasta and Tesco, paid a visit to Madley Park House Care Home in Whitney. The chickens belong to home manager Nikki Rowlands, who has cared for them since they were a week old. She said, Our residents were excited to see the animals. Their faces lit up when they saw them. The chickens are very friendly and one of our ladies said the feathers were lovely and soft. And the second news item, a car destroyed in blaze. A car was a smouldering wreck after it caught fire at stables at Brighthampton near Standlake. Two crews from Whitney Fire Station were faced with a car well alight when they arrived. The driver had not parked in their normal place, which prevented the fire from spreading to neighbouring cars and a barn. Flames were extinguished using a high-pressure hose reel jet. The fire is believed to have been accidental. An Oxfordshire Fire and Rescue spokesman said, It is important that if you notice anything wrong with your car or smell anything strange, to pull over when safe to do so and safely inspect it. Well, that completes this uh, edition. I'm sorry I can't tell you any more about those two chickens or why they're called uh, Tesco and Pasta. Seemed odd names for chickens to me, but there we are. We hope you enjoy the edition. I enjoyed the edition. Our thanks go mainly to the Whitney Gazette this week for the articles we've used. Special thanks go to our recording engineer, Graham Diacon, and thanks also go to our four readers this week, Debbie Diacon, Jenny Wiley, John Ashwell and Gavin Smalley. Our admin team this week is Doreen Turner and Anne Trelaw, and our copiers and packers are Debbie again and John again. So they've got two jobs this week. Keep listening at the end of our programme for highlights of this week's best radio and TV listening, 
And just to wrap up, uh, I know that everybody here would like to say goodbye to you. So a big rousing send-off. Goodbye. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, July 9th. On Radio 4 at 3 o'clock, we have the first part of a dramatisation of D.H. Lawrence's novels The Rainbow and Women in Love. This four-part series examines the complexity of love through the pairing of these two novels. In this first drama, Ursula Brangwen reflects on three generations of the Brangwen family from the 1840s to 1905. Opera lovers will want to tune into Radio 3 at 6.30 for Madame Butterfly from the Royal Opera House. The production promises to be more true to the spirit of the original and more authentic in its representation of Japan and its culture. If opera is not to your taste, you may prefer to tune into Radio 4 Extra at 7pm for 4 Extra at the British Seaside. Tony Liddington visits Brighton, where he reflects on how the city has inspired a wealth of seaside memories captured in the BBC Sound Archives. Sunday, July 10th. Radio 3 at 3 o'clock presents drama Mansfield Park, a new version of Jane Austen's novel. In the first of a two-part broadcast, Fanny Price, at the age of nine, is sent to live with her rich relatives at Mansfield Park. Then at 7.30 on Radio 3, we have He Do the Wasteland in Different Voices. In this performance of T.S. Eliot's poem The Wasteland, to mark its centenary year, the readers trace the various characters and voices through the poem. Now to the programmes that are broadcast at the same time each day of the working week. So Monday to Friday, same time, same radio station. At 9.45, Radio 4, Book of the Week is The War of Nerves. In this series, Martin Sixsmith, who reported for the BBC from Moscow during the presidency of Gorbachev and Yeltsin, explores the Cold War and its legacy. The subject in this episode, nuclear brinkmanship. A new programme starting this week Every night from 7 o'clock till 10, Classic FM broadcasts smooth classics every evening. And Radio 4's book at bedtime at 10.45 is Winchelsea. Alex Preston's tale of revenge, identity and smuggling is set in 18th century Sussex. On to then the rest of the highlights for the week, starting with Monday, July 11th. Radio 4 Extra at 10am, The Razor's Edge is a dramatisation of Somerset Maugham's 1944 novel. Part 2 goes out at the same time on Tuesday. The splendid news for lovers of comedy broadcasts is the return of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue on Radio 4 at 6.30 on Monday. Jack D chairs from the Royal Albert Hall the first episode of the 50th anniversary series. Tuesday, July 12th, Radio 4 at 9 o'clock sees the return of The Long View, in which Jonathan Friedland explores a moment in history that throws light on a contemporary debate. He and his guests assess the Labour Party's response to the summer of discontent and whether those experiences have any bearing on its position today. A popular favourite, The Railway Children, is dramatised on Radio 4 Extra at 1.30. This first part is followed through the week at the same time by the remaining three episodes. It's well worth tuning into for this heartwarming Edwardian tale of family love and determined children. And if 1.30 is not ideal, it's on at 8.30 all week as well. 
Wednesday, July 13th, and two music programmes to suggest to you. On Radio 4 at 11.30am, Music Made in the Middle. The singer Jamelia explores music made in the West Midlands, looking at the region's rich musical identity and history. And Radio 3 in concert at 7.30pm comes from York Minster, as part of the York Early Music Festival. Tonight's programme is a recreation of the Coronation Mass, which took place at St Mark's, Venice, in 1595. Thursday, July 14th, Radio 4 at 9am poses the question, can the police keep us safe? Helena Kennedy QC and Assistant Police Commissioner Rob Beckley explore the question of policing and public safety, both on the streets and online. Surely a matter of concern for all of us. Cricket lovers may wish to know that on Radio 4 Longwave and 5 Live Sports Extra, they'll be broadcasting the one-day international England versus India from 12.45. And the Radio 4 comedy slot at 6.30 is given over to Giles Jokebox. Giles Brandveth asks his guests to pick their favourite audio comedy moments of all time. In doing so, he charts how humour has evolved over the decades. And we round off this week's highlights with Friday, July 15th. Radio 4 at 2.15 and drama English Rose. In the first of this new series, 18-year-old Rose travels from Whitby to New York to work as a nanny for a glittering but secretive family where all is not certainly not what it seems and revenge hangs in the air. Friday, July 15th is the first night of the BBC Proms Often a big night in the calendar for music lovers, but also for many of us who know that the summer is finally here. It's on Radio 3 at 7.15, a performance live from the Royal Albert Hall of Verdi's Requiem, opening this year's season. Laughter is guaranteed on Radio 4 at 6.30 with dead riggers in the company of impressionists John Colshaw, Jan Ravens and others. That's it for now. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. TNF Soundings.